Frailty is one of those terms that's used relatively frequently by emergency clinicians. But what does it actually mean? It's often used in conversations discussing vulnerable patients, or perhaps when trying to avoid hospital. But can you actually put your finger on what makes someone frail? Then there's these frailty scores that seem to just appear on electronic patient records one day. And if you're like me, no one ever said what they were for, no one ever told you how to use one. And let's be honest, you only really fill them in because you can't sign off the EPR without it, right? That's why this month we've teamed up with the paramedic and co-host of the MDT Older Adults podcast to really get to understand this topic. We're going to look at what frailty is, why it's so vitally important to recognise and factor into our care, and crucially, why pre-hospital staff are perhaps the best people to be filling in that all-important clinical frailty scale. This month's podcast is going to totally rockwood. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to another episode of General Broadcast. My name is Josh. My name's Simon. And this month we are joined by a special guest who I'm going to let introduce herself. Hi, my name is Georgie. I'm a teaching fellow and paramedic currently working with the MDT podcast, who are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. And thank you very much for uh, joining us, Georgie. So Georgie approached us about doing a joint venture on a really, really interesting and important topic, which is frailty. And I know I've certainly learnt a lot in preparing for this and I know speaking to you Georgie with your expertise and your background it's going to be really uh, really impactful and I'm sure going to give lots of people a lot of information and a lot of points to take away. Before we say why this is a particularly important topic do you just want to tell us a little bit about your day-to-day role in the hospital? Yeah so I'm currently employed by Hospital Trust and um, I'm funded a couple of days a week to make our podcast Um, a couple of days a week to do some teaching and then also work in our front door um, frailty team in the emergency department. So we're a team of nurses and a paramedic and we target any older adults who are coming into our hospital with high frailty scores or who have had falls with dementia and confusion to try and give them early access to higher input from geriatricians. Excellent. And that's going to be uh, really important when we come to talk about how frailty scores are used and what we can do as pre-hospitalists to impact on our patient's care and, and how we can help influence that. But first, before we go on to talk about that, Georgie, can you just tell us a little bit about why this is a particularly important topic and why people should keep listening? Why, why do we need to know more about frailty? Absolutely. So I think paramedics and ambulance clinicians generally are really well placed to assess frailty. You're attending people in their homes and the social environment in which they live. So we're able to see a sort of normal baseline for that patient. We're attending high numbers of older people, also high numbers of frail patients. And I think there are a few ways that, you know, we can just support patients ongoing care to be more personalised to them by recognising frailty earlier as it flags up to the teams like mine at the earliest point in that person's journey of care. Fantastic. So let's get started. So we're going to start off by defining what frailty is. And what I found particularly helpful was from listening to one of the back catalogues of the MDT podcast where you started off by defining what frailty isn't. Mm. One of your colleagues put it, I I think, put it really nicely and said that whilst frailty is related to ageing and it is uh, associated with advanced age, it's not part of the normal ageing process and it's not simply getting older, it's not being disabled and it's not being comorbid. It's, It's a little bit different from that. I think that's important to have in our mind when we're talking about what frailty is, that it's, it's not just simply having lots of health problems. It's, uh, it's something a, a little bit more nuanced. With that in mind, Georgie, can you tell us what frailty is? 
So frailty develops as a consequence of age-related decline in multiple physiological systems, which collectively results in a vulnerability to sudden health changes triggered by relatively minor stressful events. And that's how Clegg in 2013 defined it. So it's a sort of loss of physical, emotional and cognitive resilience as a result of multiple health deficits. So the way I really like to think about frailty is thinking about a sort of line graph. And as someone's going along at their baseline, then they have a relatively minor illness, which knocks them down. And then because of someone's frailty, it's more difficult for them to get back up to that baseline. And then they get knocked down again. And gradually, they're just not quite ever getting back to where they were before. And so they're each time they're more and more vulnerable to the effects of potential stresses and complications and a worsening. It's sort of a spiral of decline. And and this term stressor is is quite often used in the literature. And I have to say, I, I kind of replace that as infection in my mind as, as the main stressor that people will be familiar with. But but it can also be things such as minor surgical procedures or being started on a new medication. Or in the context of particularly in cases like dementia, stressors can include a change in environment or a change in social setting. So I think it's just important to to remember that it isn't just getting a chest infection that can exacerbate these cases of frailty. So that's that's what frailty is. How common is it? Well, it, it, it can fluctuate ever so slightly depending on uh, what you use as your benchmark for frailty. So some of the evidence that's out there uh, would suggest between the ages of 65 and 69, approximately 4% of the population are frail, rising to 7% between the ages of 70 and 74. And then over 85 years, that level of frailty can rise to about 26% of that population. But there's some studies where those rates appear to be higher. So the rates of frailty appear to be higher, higher uh, suggesting that between a quarter and half of the population of over 85 year olds could be said to be frail. So they're, they're, they're quite big benchmarks, but probably when we're getting to the point of, of, of 85, somewhere around one in four of them could be said to have an element of frailty. And what we do know from the data is that frailty tends to be statistically more prevalent in women than it is in men. So why should we recognise this? Why is it important to, to recognise? Well, uh, as we'll come on to talk a, a bit more in detail later, it can have major impacts on patients care in hospital but but recognizing patients that are frail means that we can highlight them to benefit from interventions that may reduce the impacts of their frailty so patients that that are frail can have increased risk of falls they have increased risks of admissions to hospital and increased costs with admissions to hospital they have longer stays when they're in hospital higher risks of readmission and increased dependency on care for support with activities of daily living so it's really important that we are able to recognize and highlight these patients to ensure that they are appropriately supported with that I think it's a really important point, Josh, and Georgie highlighted the point really well earlier that even a minor insult can put a frail person into a category where they end up being conveyed to hospital. I think urine infection is a really classic example of this. So a simple UTI in a young person, they generally probably manage it quite well. They might need a course of oral antibiotics, but they should bounce back quickly. But in older people, we get a much higher incidence of delirium or sepsis or acute confusion which is going to manifest more significant clinical signs. And it's going to make the chance of that person being conveyed to hospital by an ambulance crew much higher. The problem with that comes that actually they then enter this spiral process of the if we send them to hospital, they may not be able to get home again, even if they have a relatively minor insult because of transport issues or a need for a package of care. We all know that there's issues with social care at the moment and getting people the help they need in the community. And then if people are admitted to wards, they may end up with this kind of atrophy and muscle wasting, losing their independence. And then this decline just gradually, and we end up with a patient actually that has come kind of to more iatrogenic harm by being in hospital than they would have been in the first place. So I think you've both made some really good points that actually 
we really need to look at these patients carefully and pick the right pathway for them. Is there another way we can manage them without admission to hospital or is is hospital in their best interests? And if hospital is in their best interests, can we get them to the right team early? George's team is perfectly placed if there are frailty teams and teams that are you know, led by geriatricians who are experienced in managing this patient cohort, and they are much more likely to uh, manage these insults and manage this in a more holistic way than than probably we do in the emergency department. Absolutely, I completely agree, and I think maybe um, maybe we also have slightly more time and resources at our fingertips to really look at that person from a whole person's perspective and look at every single factor to to manage that person than our ED colleagues that we work very closely alongside with do. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I'm not going to sit here and lie. I find, I find geriatrics really complicated area of practice. It's one of the ones that stresses me out on a daily basis. I, I, I've always talked about like how kind of worried paramedics get over paediatrics, but most paediatrics are relatively simple because they don't have any back. Most of them don't have any background medical problems and they are relatively minor illness. But older people come with a significant amount of frailty or comorbidity or delirium or multiple presentations, you know, differentiating a chest infection from heart failure. It's really complex medicine. And actually getting these people to experts that are trained in that early is is a really good way. We've put a video into the article online, which I encourage people to go and check out, called Mrs. Andrew's Story, Her Failed Care Pathway. And it basically shows how an ambulance admission into hospital can just deteriorate and how her health can basically spiral into this kind of pit of oblivion just by being in hospital. So it's um, it's a good video to go and have a look at that kind of talks about what what the point we're trying to get across here. So that's what, what frailty is, this gradual decline in physiologic reserve that can leave us at greater vulnerability to stresses. Let's discuss briefly some of the physiological changes that are associated with aging. And we did this quite extensively in our last episode, which was on silver trauma. So you can go back to listen to to our silver trauma episode for a little bit more detail in in how the wider systems uh, are affected by aging. But Georgie, do you want to just talk to us about some of the pertinent points and declines in physiological systems that relate to frailty? Yes. So we know that people, as they get older and more frail, you get changes in your brain, including atrophy. And an increase in frailty is also associated with an increasing rate of cognitive decline. We have decreased hormone production and people's immune systems decline in the production of stem cells and other cells. So we get a reduced speed of response to an infection or pathogen. I think a really important component of frailty for us to think about is sarcopenia, which is a progressive loss of muscle mass, strength and power, which can also be accelerated by that decline in neurological and endocrine function. So the balance of homeostasis that a person has and maybe upset, and that might accelerate the muscle loss. When we combine reducing muscle mass, reducing strength, and reducing power, it reduces someone's functionability to sort of do basic tasks like get up, stand up, walk across their room. And as you decrease doing that, you then decrease your strength, you reduce your power and your muscle mass further, and it becomes this cyclical decline. So it's then associated with an increase in risk of falls and impairment of doing your daily tasks, because things like getting out of your chair, walking to your kitchen and standing to drink a cup of tea or make a cup of tea, pour a kettle, becomes so much more difficult. And so then that leads on to increasing risks of illness, injury, fracture, and increasing costs of care and hospitalisation and institutionalisation as well. So it's generally associated with things like reducing your activity, um, reducing your appetite, anorexia, and a reduced ability to utilise protein to maintain that muscle mass. We know older people definitely eat a lot less protein and a lot less of a varied diet than younger people do as well. And that's something we talked about in our episode, uh, MGT episode on nutrition. I found it particularly interesting listening to that episode. We talk we talk a lot about like the tea and toast diet, don't we, when we when we talk about older people and and I've heard that talked about in the context of hyponatremia, but 
I, I don't, you know, that that really made me think about the wider impact and how, although older people might be eating, they might be eating a very carbohydrate heavy microwave meal based diet when they're at home and and really not equipping themselves with the ability to even retain what muscle mass that they've got and that really all feeds into that that cycle of frailty and, and deteriorating picture that, uh, that you've so brilliantly alluded to there's a risk that this carries on in hospital as well obviously we're all aware of those patients that we put on wards who we think are have fool's risk so you know we don't let them out of bed unless there's two members of staff or there's special equipment to help lift them and things like that and when they haven't been seen by the occupational therapist or the physiotherapist and we're just waiting for them to be reviewed so we leave them in bed and we encourage them to stay in bed and then their function declines even further. Georgie can you speak to us a little bit about the frailty phenotype which again is something that often goes hand in hand when sarcopenia is mentioned in the literature. So Freed et al. did a piece of work and of a sample of five and a half thousand people, they measured people's frailty and they did it based on this frailty phenotype, which is um, looking at common present factors in someone who is recognised to be frail. So this is things like unintentional weight loss, um, self-reported exhaustion, low energy expenditure, a slow gait speed and a weak grip strength. So they tested all these things and they found that 7% were frail. So they had three or more of these factors reported or measured. 47% were pre-frail and 46 were not frail in a, in a fairly large size population. And I think one of the things to recognise for people who we then recognise are frail is that it is a progressive deterioration over a full five to 10 year time. So once we've recognised these people and identified them, we can work with them and, and help them to live well with their frailty. We may not completely resolve it, but we can help them live well. And I think it's really important to remember that frailty varies in how severe it is. And it's not a simple binary concept. It is it's a spectrum along a line of those who are frail, those who are not frail, and those who are in between and moving between them. And patients will move up and down as those illnesses occur and those those stresses events happen. Yeah, so that that's one of the questions I was going to ask is that do, do you find patients tends to get better along that spectrum uh, as well as obviously deteriorate or once you have a level of frailty is it just a, a case of aiming therapy to prevent it getting any worse I think it's targeted recognition to prevent worsening or prevent those associated events so falls fractures infection deliriums by recognising that frailty and lower resilience to those stressor events, we can prevent those and prevent it worsening, but we may not always make it go away, if that sort of answers your question. Yeah, definitely it does. And and so I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about frailty phenotype when we come on to discuss frailty scoring tools. But something else that you put in the article is this idea of geriatric giants. So so how do, how does that differ? And and, uh, and and can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so geriatric giants is a um, idea that was coined by a geriatrician called Bernard Isaacs who was alive 1924 to 1995 so it's quite an old concept and there are arguments that it's been there's updated versions but his uh, original five geriatric giants are five things that are um need a holistic assessment of older people should they present with it so you're not taking it as a single illness approach so whereby we might manage a person with a chest infection as uh, who is young with just looking at that chest infection we're not really looking at anything else for these concepts we want to take a really holistic approach looking at the physical psychological and socioeconomic influences upon that person's health and well-being because we know that these these concepts are really influenced by those bernard isaac's original five geriatric giants are incontinence impairment of intellect which is a cognitive decline or impairments immobility and instability which refers to false and iatrogenesis, which is harm caused by healthcare. 
He refers to them as the giants because both they're very frequent in occurring for older people, but also in recognition of how much of a burden those things are on a patient. So modern research details uh, the modern geriatric giants, which are frailty, sarcopenia, as we've talked about earlier, anorexia of ageing and impairment, which are all associated with falls, hip fracture, depression and delirium. And I think we can all agree that ambulance clinicians are generally very, very good at employing a holistic approach to assessment. It's possibly easier, I'd argue, than when you're in a hospital because you have this, you're you're in the person's lived experience and lived environment. So you can see right in front of you the socioeconomic influences on their health and their physical well-being. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like working in um, the emergency department, obviously I can't see the patient's home in their environment and I don't have the kind of same eyes on as I used to when I worked pre-hospitally. So I just really um, implore, like, make your documentation really good because it's so helpful to us because you guys see everything that goes on in the patient's home and you get much more of a clear picture than we do and it's so valuable to us in the emergency department to help us make decisions on admission versus discharge what a patient's baseline's like their family you know even putting things like next of kin in there so we can contact the right people and ask about other things it's so useful so um yeah and I i think you're right george i think paramedics are definitely one of the most holistic health professions out there because we see people in their own world and their home environment and we can get a really good picture and people do read the paperwork weeks down the line of of an admission you know we will get consultants that read the ambulance paperwork it's so important so um yeah keep up the great work keep keep doing that to to help our in-hospital colleagues out so so i guess then just to make sure I'm, I'm taking the right thing away from that is that if we're identifying those patients that have these these as you put in it modern geriatric giants so if we're identifying patients that are frail uh, have sarcopenia have the anorexia of aging regardless of, of what they're presenting to us with we should be giving them a holistic assessment and asking questions about factors affecting those things to ensure that at each stage of healthcare contact these patients are being assessed for the things that really matter to them to prevent them getting worse yeah i kind of think of it as if you're seeing these things that should raise a little flag in your head to think is this person frail shall i ask some more wider questions we're going to come on to talking about frailty scoring in a second just because we have already mentioned it and and i imagine uh, we're going to be mentioning it a lot talking about frailty, um, the topic of delirium. Simon, do you just want to very quickly recap a little bit about delirium and and some of the things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, so as Georgie put earlier, delirium is much more common in in the older person than it is in the younger person. It can happen to younger people, but it's much more common in those that are frail. Delirium, also known as an acute confusional state. Obviously, we used to just call it acute confusion, but I think delirium is quite a powerful word. It's an acute fluctuate in encephalopathic syndrome of inattention, impaired level of consciousness and disturbed cognition. And it can present in both pre-hospital and in-hospital settings. It's really important that we understand it because like frailty, it can increase length of hospital stay. It has higher risk of complications and there's a much higher mortality rate both in hospital and up to six months post-discharge from hospitals uh, in patients that have suffered with delirium. But it is estimated that about a third of cases could be preventable with better detection and documentation of delirium. And I know that documentation of it is is quite bad amongst emergency clinicians and has been reported kind of as low as 35% in some studies, which is kind of quite quite worrying, really, that we're only recognising this in that low an amount of this population because it's it's so important and it it is an emergency. It's a clinical diagnosis, so it can be made pre-hospitally based on the DSM-5 criteria, which I've kind of summarised as there must be these features, so kind of a disturbance of consciousness, which is like reduced clarity of awareness of the environment, a poor ability to focus, or sustained or shifting loss of attention. This has to be alongside a change in cognition such as memory deficit, disorientation, language disturbance or perceptual disturbance that isn't accounted for by a pre-existing condition. So that would be something like dementia. And then 
the most important factor, I think, and this is one I think we really need to focus on and is, is good to get off uh, off people that know the patient, is that it must be a rapid onset. So we're talking hours to days and not kind of a longer term decline. So it's one really powerful aspect of how we can differentiate kind of a cognitive decline of dementia and Alzheimer's and those kind of cognitive impairments from an acute delirium is the fact that this is rapid onset. So if you go to a family member who says, you know, my mum wasn't like this two days ago, this is kind of not my mum, she's changed suddenly, That that's kind of a really good sign that this is something acute. There's kind of three clinical subtypes of delirium, hyperactive, hypoactive and then a mixed hyperactive is heightened arousal restlessness wandering and can be aggressive these patients tend to be kind of obvious they hallucinate they are agitated they're distressed and we we recognize these patients quite well i think the ones that we miss in clinical practice is the hypoactive delirium so that's kind of your decreased alertness reduced response level maybe uh, sparse or slow speech lethargy or apathy because it's just a little bit more subtle and especially if we don't know those patients then it's hard for us to tell what their baseline is normally whereas hyperactive is much more kind of in your face and obvious and then obviously there's the mixed picture so it depends when we see them because we can have features of both what are your guys thoughts on hypoactive delirium do you, do you think you've you've missed that in clinical practice because I, I definitely think I have Yes, I absolutely think I've probably missed hypoactive delirium just through not even knowing what it was until I looked into this a little bit more and started working in a more specialist environment with older adults. It wasn't really something that I could put words to. It was something I might have seen and been like, this is not quite right, but I couldn't proactively identify it and name it and explain it as much. I just think just to bounce on that a little bit about differentiating hypo and hyperactive, the 4AT score is really helpful for think for identifying those hypoactive patients. It's a scoring system with four really simple questions that helps you score someone's risk of delirium. And while it's not a rule out or a rule in, it helps us sort of flag it up. So the last thing of delirium we should briefly cover is just the common causes of delirium. For this, uh, we use, well, I use the pinch me mnemonic. So These are just things that are worth thinking about as the causes of delirium when you're and things you might want to treat in order to uh, manage the presentation. So pinch me is pain, infection, nutrition, constipation, hydration, medication and environment. And I think environment is a really important one because, again, this alludes back to the whole aspect of we're taking a patient out of their familiar environment by transporting them to hospital and putting them into an unfamiliar environment where they are much more likely to get confused. So that that very nature of transport can actually cause harm. Medications that we give people maybe for the pain that we're trying to treat. So, you know, we might have person in pain and think that's what's causing their delirium so we give them opiates that can confuse them you know we might increase their risk of falls we might give some opiates so that then causes them to be constipated there's common infections so urine infections chest infections cellulitis they're the most common things in the elderly all these things that we should think about as we're doing a nice holistic workup of our patients and it definitely deserves its own podcast and an own topic and i'm sure we'll get around to doing one one day in the meantime we'll link in the article to some fantastic resources to learn a little bit more about delirium including uh, an mdt podcast on it which i think was episode two season one episode two but in the meantime bringing it back to frailty i think before we go on to talk about frailty scores one final thing that might be useful to hash out is the difference between frailty and multimorbidity so georgie would you be able to just uh, help us understand a little bit more about that topic so um multimorbidity is um, the presence of two or more long-term conditions. Each additional long-term condition increases the risk of dependence by 20%. Multimorbidity does include mental health conditions such as depression in recognition of the burden of that disease on someone's ability to complete their ADLs and increase their dependence on others. But it's really important to remember that that is not the same as frailty and our earlier definition. Multimorbidity, the strongest three determining factors for it are female sex, older age and low socioeconomic status. Cool. So multimorbidity is just having lots or more than two comorbidities. That in itself doesn't make you frail, but fair to say in combination with advancing age probably increases your risk of frailty. 
Absolutely, yeah. It would increase your risk, but doesn't necessarily make you have frailty. I think I was really guilty, actually, of genuinely believing that um, this was the same thing. Like before, I uh, kind of prepared for this episode. I I was like, oh yeah, well, the more COVID comorbidities you have, the more frail you are, and I kind of added them into my assessment of frailty. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I've learned something preparing for this podcast, which is going to be really useful for my clinical practice. Let's go on to talk about frailty scores, because I think this is what most of the people listening will have been familiar with when it comes to frailty prior to listening to this. So from my perspective, coming into this podcast, I really wanted to learn three things, which is why we need to bother doing a frailty score, why they can't just be done in hospital, and why it's recommended that we do them at each stage of care how they're used in in practice so tangibly what changes are made in hospital based on us doing a pre-hospital frailty score and then how we do one so i think that third question is probably the easiest to answer and most people are probably going to be familiar with the clinical frailty scores or sometimes turned the rockwood frailty score and that's definitely the one that I know is used in my area of operation and practice. And I think Georgie, you were saying that's the one that's used by the ambulance service down your way. So what is the Rockwood Frailty Score and how should we be using it? So Rockwood is a clinical frailty score designed by a geriatrician called Rockwood, which is a nine point score validated for over 65 to use. So it scores people from very fit to very frail and then palliative and terminally ill. And anyone with a score of more than five is considered frail. And a score of over six, generally in a lot of services, will initiate a comprehensive geriatric assessment. So that's input from specialist geriatric teams. It's very, very well validated across international settings um, and settings like hospital, long-term care and community settings. And it's pretty well used across most areas of elderly care. It's really helpful. You've probably seen it. There's sort of little black outlines, pictorial diagrams of um, people doing various activities, some with help, some with different aids and some in bed. But I think if I had one thing that I think is the most important thing to take away from thinking about the Rockwood score is read the words next to the pictures and think about whether they apply to your patient. Because it's uh, personally in our area, the clinical frailty score on the EPCR is actually just the outline pictures. And so that doesn't necessarily help you. It's not a case of lining up, this person uses a walking stick, therefore they must be a four. And I think that's really important that we read the descriptions of, of the level of activity that we can correlate to the person. I would really struggle with that if that was done in my service, because if you look at the clinical frailty score and then we look at the difference between eight and nine, I mean, eight is very severely frail with a patient kind of lying in bed that would imply bed bound and then nine terminally ill is just a patient sat in a chair i mean i presume is that a relative of the patient who because they're terminally ill but actually that that could be really confusing without the words next to it so um yeah i i think if 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 any service does have that it might be worth just trying to get that changed just so we can use the use the words they're linked aren't they so the 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 more advanced you are on the frailty scale it it's linked to risk of institutionalization and risk of death so for each one category increment on the rockwood scale the medium term risks of death within 70 months is about 21 percent and the risk of entry into an institution for care is 23.9 percent so they are quite closely related to deteriorations in in these patients condition i've just reread this actually i've actually got it right Number nine is kind of like suggesting that like if you were 40 but had a terminal cancer diagnosis where you're going to die but your prognosis is less than six months, you could go into that category? Yes. Oh, okay. I thought – I didn't think they could be used on people under 60. So it's not validated, but if they were, say, so over 65, so say someone is 65, yeah. was otherwise fit and well, and then is diagnosed with a terminal cancer with a life expectancy of less than six months, they would be a nine. Yeah. Right. Okay. So because of that one thing, whereas yeah. actually, so so kind of from a frailty perspective, eight is the highest, isn't it? And then nine just comes in when 
they're not otherwise evidently frail. So that could be anyone who instantly jumps to nine because they've got a pal- like a terminal diagnosis. Yeah, it's that f- that flagging that person again to say this person's got less than six months. They're probably going to okay. go through that scale at a fairly accelerated rate compared to someone without that terminal diagnosis. In fact, this was something I, I meant to ask you, Georgie. You, I think, said we should be using the, the patient's condition in the preceding two weeks rather than how they are in front of us now. Is that right? Or have I made that up? No, that's absolutely correct. And it's because as acute care clinicians, we're probably seeing someone at a point of decline, whether they've got an infection or any other stressor. So it's going to put them possibly higher up. That person who's um, a little bit more wobbly on their feet might be using a Zimmer frame, might need more help with bathing, getting dressed and things like that. And that would put them up towards a six. But actually in their day-to-day life, they might be someone who's not dependent on others except for larger tasks like um, money and housework, um, which might put them between a four and a five, depending. Okay, so it's not like scoring GCS where we do what's in front of us. We should be asking questions about what this patient's norm is rather than how they are potentially in a in a worse situation in front of us. You You want their normal functional level to come through in this clinical score yes that's what i would want from their paperwork but i think also sometimes it's useful to sort of possibly have both as a sense of you can see what a normal baseline is as a target and to think about but there's also their current proactive what's going on right now that we can look at as well our frailty teams in my hospital use both so they kind of look at what it is now and then what it was two weeks before or or kind of a before this insult occurred and then they use that as georgie just said as a target to try and get them back to so if they can they they obviously appreciate that sometimes people get worse down that scale but that's their kind of rehab goals is to try and get people back to to the level they were before from what they are now so it's another good thing that can be used by this scale is actually you can try and improve things back but i think it's a really good point not to necessarily especially if we're going to make decisions about palliative care and end-of-life care based upon frailty, which you know is important and we do need to consider. But it can be misleading sometimes when we get someone who is acutely unwell, like really sick, and then we're making decisions about their care based upon what we see in front of us. And I know I've been guilty of that, where I've looked at someone and gone, actually, this person looks very frail. They look really sick. I, I think they need to be palliated. And then when the next of kin have eventually arrived at hospital and I've managed to speak to them, they're like, well, they were working in Tesco a week ago. And you're like, oh, actually, I've massively got this one wrong. And actually, their baseline function is significantly better than than what they appear to be now. So actually, I probably should change my management plan. So yeah, I think um, I've been caught out by that a few times. I think it's really important that we we consider that. So I think it's a really great point to make. So whilst Rockwood is probably the most Uh, common frailty score that we're likely to encounter it's certainly not the only one that's out there and one of the scores that you highlighted as us probably seeing most often on discharge paperwork is the EFI frailty score so Georgie would you be able to tell us just a little bit more about that yeah so EFI is just one I think is quite important for us to be aware of what it is um it uses routine primary care data and it's normally you'll see it written on sort of things like discharge summaries if you can access summary care records things like that um, and it will say EFI and then a, a number sort of 0.7 and a couple of other numbers after it. And that is a statistical test. It's not driven by clinicians. It's entirely computerized that uses conditions that are on the patient's GP records to calculate a frailty index score. Because it's not clinician driven, it's prone to false positives, false negatives, because it's just based on the frequency of conditions in a list. The higher the person's EFI score, the more suggestive of frailty that person is with a higher risk of care home admission, higher risk of hospitalisation and an increased mortality rate. So from a primary care perspective, it's a bit of an identifier for um, a further assessment, a referral to a sort of frailty day unit, a specialist in the community, things like that. We were going to talk about this in, in a little bit, but I think it comes in quite nicely now, which is bringing in a little bit about how we've arrived at that score into our social history and into our documentation. So 
you could argue that the numerical value on its own probably isn't that helpful in isolation for continuation of care and and you doing your job Simon and, and and you doing your job Georgie probably what is far more beneficial is a little bit of the workings about how we've how we've arrived at that and a little bit about what we're seeing on scene as the pre-hospital clinicians rather than just a numerical figure which may or may not correlate with the patient that you've got in front of you uh, after a couple of hours of, of, of therapy. So we need to be documenting what this patient does for their activities of daily living, so their ADLs. And I was quite guilty of of thinking that just was getting washed and dressed and getting your food but actually we should be asking and commenting about how they manage their shopping how they manage their their money how they are able to go out and get their their pension what support do they need with that do they drive to their doctor's appointments for example are they capable of getting the bus or are they completely reliant on private ambulance services to to come and get them what mobility aids we're seeing and i think we've discussed it in our falls podcast as well but we should probably comment on the suitability of those mobility aids and whether or not they're in in good serviceable condition because i know it's it's not uncommon at all for someone to be given a zimmer frame uh, a couple of years ago and uh, the gripping sections on it to be completely worn so they're essentially walking around their uh, their house with a very slidey walking frame we should be talking about care package which again in hospital you may not be able to easily understand what package of care they've got in place as well as falls frequency so you you may not see the ambulance paperwork other than this the single pcr related to that patient's admission so if we're seeing that this patient is falling every week they're a regular faller and we're just leaving them at home in hospital you may not have access to that kind of really useful, important information. So again, we need to be putting that into uh, into a, a detailed social history. And really, for a lot of these patients that we're identifying as, as frail, the social history comment section of our notes should be one of the most detailed sections of our paperwork because it is that important for helping the onward care and uh, the the geriatric medicine level care that is going to be the difference for these for these specialized patients. I also wanted to add I also think having some confidence as a clinician to fill this box in and knowing that it does make a really big difference to the care and and who sees a patient it's a really nice flag for patients to have done so early on getting it done in red it's either done at triage or by the ambulance crews Um, and i just think it's something that ambulance crews don't really have an excuse not to do i think it's something that is so proactively important for us to be doing yeah i'd completely agree and it's become a national benchmark that we have to be doing it within i think it's 30 ideally 30 minutes of arrival in the emergency department they need to be uh, over 65 need to be given a cfs score and and I think like you know, if we're doing that as emergency clinicians, I, I class paramedics as part of that circle. So uh, I think yeah, I, I fully agree that you know ambulance staff and ambulance clinicians should be should be doing this score as well. It's really relevant. You know, we're expected to do holistic assessments of patients, and it can give us so much information to help form decision making and to justify our decision making with conveyance, non-conveyance decisions, and how we've managed a patient. I think that brings us nicely onto the to the second point that I wanted to achieve from this conversation, which is what tangible changes these scores can influence within hospital. Maybe you could both give us a bit of an example about how these scores can affect the the, the patient's treatment options or care options within within hospital and their journey through the system in, in hospital. Because from a pre-hospital perspective it would be very easy for us to assume that we fill this score in and then this data is just lost in the ether uh, within the very busy ed department or or very busy wards so from our perspective we are an ed-based service older persons assessment liaison service so at triage and handover our triage nurse will document the patient's clinical frailty score and when we're looking through the tracker we will look to see what that score is and any person with a score of over six so six seven eight or nine we will put them down on the list to sort of have a look into a bit more 
It won't necessarily mean that we will see them face to face just because we are a really small team and we have quite a lot of patients, sort of 20 to 30 a day that are hitting this criteria. But we will try and see the ones that once we've done a few more investigations, where do they live? Have they had repeat admissions? Do they have falls? Do they have any cognition problems, any deliriums present? Um, Then we'll go and see them face to face and start implementing, just looking through the pinch me, looking through whether a person with any cognition problems needs something like a reach out to me or about me form, which is a way of getting to know the person who cannot cognitively tell us their wishes and in regards to things like do they want a cup of tea or coffee what are their conversations how can we manage them if they're a little bit distressed um, those sorts of things we get those done really early we'll look at their pain we'll look at how quick can we get them through the ED and obviously that's a little bit tricky with currently how hospitals are, are quite full and getting a person to bed Um, in an appropriate place is not always the most easy Um, but we'll start putting in things like getting them a bed getting them a falls bed if they're at risk of falling getting them a pressure mattress requesting them a bed on an elder care board so it by flagging this patient it gets them a whole host of extra input that our ed colleagues do an incredible job but they are so busy it's a person looking specifically right at that person for for a period of time yeah definitely we struggle to see and holistically see these patients you know i can go in and go oh they've got an acute chest infection i've done a chest x-ray i've done a set of bloods i found an infection i'm going to treat it with antibiotics but actually as you rightly said earlier georgie that's that's a very small part of the assessment and this person needs a much larger more holistic assessment on top of that that can take a little bit of time and when we have the situation that we have at the moment where we've got ambulances stacking on in ramping and we've got the waiting room filling up and infection control concerns and flow problems and social care problems it's kind of hard to find time to do that level of assessment and i wish we could but actually the you know the reality is that we just don't have time so it's really good to identify these patients early so if eds and and a lot of eds are starting to get frailty specialist teams i know my hospital does and obviously you work in one georgie they they are starting to exist so it's really good to identify them early i know for a fact our frailty clinical nurse specialist is so so useful she's an absolute font of knowledge and you can always phone her and she knows all the pathways gets people out of hospital has community beds knows exactly how to put packages of care in, in in every area that we serve. She's just invaluable. And it's stuff that I used to really like doing pre-hospitally to try and keep people out of hospital that I just don't necessarily have time to do in hospital now unless I'm going to spend two hours with one patient making phone calls and speaking to relatives and all sorts of stuff. But it's really good to know that that service exists and that we can rely upon them. I think from an ambulance perspective, it's just worth thinking that, especially in the current climate, if we're going to transport this patient and we're going to sit in a hospital queue for hours, maybe, if there is another avenue, is it worth us staying on scene for kind of a little bit longer than we traditionally would have done? Because actually, if we can keep that patient out of hospital by accessing some of these other services. And I know some of these services are difficult to access in places. And I hear this a lot from people that, you know, oh yeah, well those services don't exist or they only exist in the day. Yeah, that that's, that's kind of true in some places and other places have better services. I think we should be trying where possible. I also think that there's a lot of places where people don't know that services exist and they actually do. So it might be just worth doing a bit of research in your local area. There's NHS Service Finder, and I think that is an absolute asset to putting in your patient postcode, putting in the service you want, finding all the details to access it. It's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, I've come across this app. Um, Yeah, that is a really amazing point. I think actually we should probably, Josh, try and put a link to this in our article so that other people can go and use it because it's uh, it's an amazing resource that you, as you quite rightly said, you can just find kind of local services and it gives you all the details to access them when they're open, when they accept patients, their referral criteria. It is a work in progress, so it's kind of like an ongoing project from um, NHS England, I think, And uh, but I think it will be a really valuable resource. In EDs, the other value of identifying frail patients early is that we might change our management. So Whereas someone with certain conditions like sepsis, I might be calling ITU down, I might be, you know, 
getting central lines in. I might be starting presses and aggressive therapies to kind of resuscitate these patients. If someone is severely frail, it might be more that I consider not intervening and having chats with family about ceilings of care, you know, writing TEP forms and things like that. And, and frailty is a palliative condition of its own right. And therefore we might change how we approach the patient so we don't distress them. We make them comfortable and co- concentrate on kind of symptom control and making them comfortable in, in palliative care as opposed to aggressive intervention. So I think from an ED perspective and an emergency perspective, that's kind of relevant as well. And I do apply that in the pre-hospital environment as well. So there are some nursing home patients that are frail and yes, come with comorbidities, but but frailty is is high that I will not treat for sepsis and I will leave in the care home deliberately with sepsis and just make them comfortable because I'm going to make that decision that actually they're not going to have treatment in hospital. That level of being able to make that clinical decision does come with experience and I'm comfortable with that. And I know that I don't expect an NQP who's straight out of university necessarily to be comfortable making that decision. Some will be, some won't, but um, just always think about it. Brilliant. Well, that, that's a really interesting conversation that we've had. Thank you for for joining us and facilitating it, Georgie. I think just to, to finish off, because we're aware we want to try and uh, not massively overrun on this podcast, could you just give us some of your, your main takeaway points and tips for managing and dealing with frail older people just before we uh, we close up? Absolutely. There's a few things. I think one of the things that's probably come up quite a lot as we've been talking is the importance of taking the opportunity to identify frailty. So thinking again about those geriatric giants we talked about earlier, doing your frailty scores, thinking about that holistic assessment. And then maybe even if you're not taking that patient to hospital, thinking about notifying the GP, seeing if specialist nurses need to be involved and just documenting it because we all know how helpful it is to go back and see that record. It just helps us sort of think a bit further. I think recognise the important role of carers in documenting that someone has a carer or that they are a carer. Being aware of unpaid carers and that we can also refer to carer support services. That's something we're doing quite a lot as an older person service. Along with recognising the importance of carers in providing the history and recognising who they are and giving them support. And then also remembering that the NHS guidelines regarding ED attendance with a carer has changed. So it's now actively uh, encouraged again. Ensuring people have integrated care services in place. So things like thinking about tertiary sector services, things like Silver Line, befriending services, shopping services, Red Cross, fire safety. Thinking a little bit more out of the box than maybe we might always think if you're called to someone for a fall. Think about the things that holistically, again, go around that fall. Documenting what's normal for a person. And I think another one I had to add was also when you're writing your records um i don't know if simon will agree but people it's really difficult to ascertain from paperwork whether someone lives in a residential or nursing home and that can make a really big difference to discharge planning so really documenting that early when you're there can save a whole host of time in the hospital thinking about what is what are we going to do with this patient or oh, they might need nursing input or well, if they've already got it i don't need to make 10 phone calls so it's really helpful it's really valuable. So yeah, great point. Um, and my last point, my last top tip is probably transport patients, uh, walking aids, hearing aids and glasses. And we know that having hearing aids and glasses can really help orientate and support patients, especially if they're in a noisy, confusing environment and reduce the incidence of delirium as well. Giving people the thing that they used to walk around is just it should be a simple basics, but we do often hear that comment from ambulance clinicians of, oh, we won't take your frame to hospital. It will tend to go walk about you're impeding that person from getting around and doing their normal activities and therefore contributing to that deconditioning that we talked about earlier. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah, this is um, this is really a, a bad habit that needs to be broken, isn't it? So no more of this, oh, we, we won't take uh, your Zimmer frame because they've got one in the hospital for you or, or uh, we won't take your, your stick, whatever you use, because you might lose it. That's what labels are for and... and this is patient property that uh, that, that we's clinical staff can look after, isn't it? So um, absolutely, we need to to bring these normal things in for people to use to, like you say, to help prevent them 
becoming institutionalized it's it's kind of silly now i think back of that and and it really does need to stop so um yeah if you take anything away from this podcast uh hearing aids glasses mobility aids wherever possible uh take them with your patient it's so useful down the line and i think final similar topic is also think about your bed rails when um you're putting your patient on the trolley in ed does that person have bed rails at home are they confused and likely have to climb over the bed rails are they likely to fall out? I don't, there's a, there's a real danger of overusing bed rails and impeding someone's freedom when they're in an ED by institutionalizing them and putting these rails up just because we always do. And I think that that's um, another thing that we can think about early. Oh, I'll, I'll slap my wrists now. Cause I, uh, I definitely do that. So I'm sorry. To be fair, I, I do as well. And then I do it <laughs> and then I think no, and put it back down again um when i'm working pre-hospital so and yeah it's- i literally literally did this yesterday so uh yeah i think uh, i'll take that away as a change to my practice because i think i do oh confused patient i'll just pop this up yeah and actually <laughs> but, they're yeah. more likely to fall <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and i know that as well is uh but yeah it's just um yeah no actually a really great point I'll, uh, and i think i'll uh i'll make a little change to my my practice as a as a result of just thinking about that again Excellent. Well, uh, I'm just very aware of time and uh, we could just talk for absolutely hours about this topic, especially with you, Georgie, because you're a fountain of knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We will, of course, link to the MDT podcast, which has fantastic topics that are really, really relevant and really useful for us as pre-hospitalists. So we will uh, we will link to uh, to a lot of those in the in the article. And uh, yeah, it would be great to to do something uh, again in in the future if uh, if you'd like to come back and talk about one of the many other topics that affect the the, the older patients that uh, we as pre-hospitalists and, and paramedics can really really. Um, make positive influences on i would absolutely love to i can talk about old people forever (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so amazing having um different paramedics and with with varying experiences that we can all learn from each other and i you know i think that's one thing we should uh we should all do is try and learn from from everyone in these job roles that do kind of specialist stuff uh you know the education is is amazing hopefully between our two podcasts that's something we're trying to get out there and share so um if everyone's listening to this can share it with someone else, then we can carry on this learning and hopefully better paramedicine. Okay, so let's summarise. Frailty is a long-term health condition caused from the accumulation of multiple comorbidities, both physical and psychological. It can be described as a reduction in resilience in every avenue of health impacting on a patient's ability to resist becoming unwell and their ability to recover from illness. Frailty is dynamic, with acute deteriorations and improvements possible. However, it is often terminal and will continue to decline until the patient eventually dies. Frailty is not just getting old, and not all who reach advanced age are frail. But we need to recognise these patients, because patients who are frail have an increased risk of falls, increased admissions to hospital, increased length of stays, and higher risks of readmission, as well as trajectory towards institutional care and excess risk of death. The most common way of flagging someone who is frail is using the Rockwood or Clinical Frailty Scale. This allows specialist teams like Georgie's to find the frail patients in their hospitals and tailor care and therapy to help limit the impacts of their illness and hopefully work towards getting them back towards their normal functional state. Remember to read the words, not just look at the pictures when you're doing this with the clinical frailty scale. And we need to remember that we should be scoring patients baseline at how they've been generally over the last couple of weeks, rather than how they appear directly in front of us now as they may appear far more frail because of their illness. As pre-hospitalists, we get the biggest real-life look at how this person is coping at home, so detailed documentation of living situation, as well as all of the social elements that we've discussed, is really helpful to our in-hospital colleagues. And finally, please remember to bring patients sticks, glasses and hearing aids to hospital. This is really, really key to helping them to keep their independence and prevent institutionalisation. 
When you're very frail, simply being able to get yourself from your bed to the nearby chair can make all the difference to your stay and eventual discharge. Well, that's all for this month. Thank you again so much for joining us. As always, there's going to be an article on the website generalbroadcast.org.uk where we will have covered lots of the things we've talked about today as well as some of the excellent resources that are out there from the MDT podcast. And it's not just about frailty. They have a huge back catalogue looking at loads of factors involved with caring for elderly patients. So it really is a worthwhile resource adding to your podcatcher. And next month will be the last episode of General Broadcast before our short summer break so that we get to enjoy a bit of the sunshine. So hopefully you're going to join us for that one because it's a really good one. Well, I would say that. Anyway, thank you very much for listening and join us next month.